Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. For this episode, I've dug back through the Dan Snow's History Hit archive, and I've pulled out a gem of an episode with Dr. Jamie Wood and Professor Neil McKay from the University of York. Now, they're both mathematicians who love history, and what they've done is they've taken their research and their way in which they solve problems within mathematics, and they've applied it to work out the loss ratios on certain days during the Battle of Britain and calculated what would have happened if this had been replicated consistently through the period. Basically, they've worked out the what-ifs of the Battle of Britain. It is truly a fascinating and fantastic take. So here it is, Jamie Wood and Professor Neil McKay on the what-ifs of the Battle of Britain. Guys, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You made the internet melt down <laughs> because you A, talked about the Battle of Britain, you B, tried to apply some mathematical interrogation, which historians get very nervous about because we're all enumerate, and C, you, it was dangerously counterfactual. Tell me, how did the adventure begin? Well, in my case, I remember hearing a lecture by a chap called John Kingman on Lanchester's models, which were a simple way of trying to capture some of the maths of warfare. And my journey began by setting that as a, an exam question for undergraduate students and then setting it as a project for an undergraduate student. And that particular undergraduate student, I said, OK, you know, find me some nice wartime data that we can try out these equations on. And uh, the answer was very close to home. He came to me with the Battle of Britain. And that was 10 years ago. And in fact, so that there was a first paper 10 years ago and then the new one that's caused the trouble just recently. But it's the same data, basically. And the reason it's good data is because one day is pretty much like another, which is very good from the point of view of statistical cleanness. The types of planes used, many aspects of the battle didn't change day by day through the battle, and so it gave us a nice clean data set to play around with some, some maths on. I had a very peculiar routine that I was a graduate student studying physics, and I was very privileged to meet somebody called Joseph Rotbat, who at the time was only one of two surviving members of the Manhattan Project. And that got me interested in uh, World War II history and the atomic bomb and the development of it. And from that, I got um, had a conversation with Neil over coffee when I joined the maths department at 
York and we started talking about methods and maths and history and well we've published several papers now together on maths. I think we were perhaps both slightly embarrassed to be history geeks underneath our mathematician exteriors and we gradually discovered that actually each of us was obsessed by historical stuff. I know those furtive conversations only too well. What do you feel is, is sort of missing from the way history is often told that you guys can help with? So I think the counterfactual history has a really bad name in history and frankly with some justification. But what we can do with some of the mathematical techniques that we bring and being quite from the more applied end of maths, we're quite happy to throw whatever we can at something to make the best answers, is we can actually start to put some numbers and some quantification on the kind of distributions of things that might have happened. And that's something we find that historians kind of do but don't admit to because you need to understand that to differentiate between the people who were got lucky or the people who were actually did the right thing and became unlucky. And history judges you very harshly because it only takes uh, one mistake, one, uh, what's the, the horse tack or whatever it is. Horseshoe nail. Horseshoe yeah. nail to send you off when actually when you made very sensible decisions as a historical actor, you might end up with a, getting a terrible reputation because of the proverbial uh, horseshoe nail. So there's this debate in history, of course. Um, many people really don't like counterfactual history. Michael Howard said, grown-ups, grown-up historians don't do counterfactual history. And it's uh, an entirely natural and reasonable position. So what has been described as exuberant counterfactual history, where you pile supposition on supposition, is just not good historical analysis at all, of course. But then at the other extreme, if you write any history at all that is not just one thing after another, then you end up using the kind of language that at least implies that decisions were made and alternatives were possible. And somewhere in the middle, the people who, who try and resolve this, uh, Neil Ferguson, Richard Evans, the way they write about it, you have a sense that they don't really know quite how to um, uh, sort of occupy the middle ground. So there's a point at which Neil Ferguson says rather plaintively, how are we to distinguish probable from improbable unrealised alternatives? And then he just stops there and leaves it. And I guess our take is, well, let us at least try to apply some of the modern mathematical and statistical computing techniques that are available. And then we work with historians who have the, the correct reaction to counterfactual history. You know, be very careful. And their take would be that we do as much as we can reasonably with the numbers and then take that as a jumping off point for quite conventional historical analysis. And the thing with the Battle of Britain story was that that was exactly what we did, and we arrived at absolutely the consensus view about the Battle of Britain, actually, which from our point of view was quite a good thing, because as a test of the methodology, if it came up with something really weird, then we really would have had more work to do. The fact that the, uh, the quantification was consistent with what most people believe, from our point of view, meant that uh, the method was reasonable in retrospect. And so let's talk about what, what you came up with. Where did you come down on how close fighter command got to being unable to ca carry on intercepting right. German raids. We were very careful not to adopt a position. Right. So what we did, um, th there's a, a mode of thinking in statistics and Bayesian thinking where what you try and do is you begin with some view, you challenge it with evidence, and then you see how that view is modified on the basis of the evidence. So what, what we did was first of all to identify um, trained monoplane fighter pilots as the crucial constraint, not airframes. Britain was building plenty of airframes, but pilot availability. And we said, OK, so suppose you're the kind of historian who thinks that it was a very narrow margin indeed, that the Battle of Britain was won on a coin toss. So you think Britain had a 50% chance, say, of winning in some sense, to be made precise, not losing too many pilots, winning the Battle of Britain. And then what we did was to play around with different um, uh, contractions and expansions of the phases of the battle or different targeting and see how that historian ought rationally to change their probability of victory 
on the basis of those changes. So 50% might, in a very adverse situation for the British, change to 10%, let's say. If, on the other hand, you were a historian who believed that uh, uh, Britain was always going to win and won easily, suppose you think that Britain had a 95% chance of winning, then that might come down in these counterfactual scenarios to 50%, something like that. So, so we don't adopt a view okay. on whether Britain actually won the battle with ease or not. We simply adopt views on how, given your beliefs about that, you should change them after um, altering the conditions and phases of the battle. So when you alter conditions, what you're saying is on the 15th of August, for example, or the 15th of September, Battle of Britain Day, you just, you just ratchet up the number of hurricanes and spitfires that might have been lost? Not quite. Okay. So what we're doing is we're, um, so we're doing this thing called bootstrapping. Okay? So the easiest way to think about it is the analogy we use there. So let's just imagine a simple bootstrap. What we do is we take every single day in the Battle of Britain and we write them almost literally on a, on a bingo ball, okay? on a ball. We put them into a wheel and we spin it round and we pull out another Battle of Britain. Okay? So if we just do that, then we just get a reordered Battle of Britain. So okay, so you've got the plus, so you've got the casual, the profit and loss of each day. That's a horrible way of yep. talking about it. But you've got the, the, the casualty figures on each day, and then so the day, the fifteenth of August, goes back to the eleventh of July. Could do. So yeah. that's a reordering. But okay. what we do instead is we we allow replacement. So that means on many different battles of Britain, we could pull out uh, bad days several times and pull out good days. Not at all. So you pick the ball out of the urn with its numbers on it. You write them down. You chuck the ball back in, and then pick out another one. Yeah. So doing that with like literally tens of thousands of times builds you up a distribution of possible battles of Britain. Okay, so that is going to be one of these bell curves because it, you're not doing anything clever with it. Um, so what we did then, in addition to that, is that we can say that certain days there was a particular strategy that the Germans were adopting. They were attacking airfields. They were doing reconnaissance. They were attacking London, whatever. And if you like, what we're going to do is we're going to weight those balls differently. We're going to make it more or less likely that we choose those balls in different ones of the counterfactual scenarios. So what that means is, is that on days on a more kind of airfield heavy day, we pick out more of the balls where they attacked airfields. Now, the problem with that, of course, is if we only have a small number of days where they did a particular tactic, you are repeatedly pulling the same day out multiple times and you will inevitably do that. And that means that you're you may be distorting it because of individual things that happen on the Weather could have been weird or something. Oh, no, the weather's very weird. We're all, that's, that's a complicated discussion. Um, but one of the things that enables us to do this is the surprising fact that each day is, is quite not very related to the one that happened previously. Yes, or the one after, true. Which is very unusual and enables us to do this. So it's a good, you love the data set. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, a nice point to make about trying to resolve the, the, the um, dispute between people who like and people who don't like counterfactual history. You see, what we've got in the days of combat data that actually happened is essentially everything that actually happened, but nothing that didn't. So if we play around to make counterfactuals out of that, well, we're not supposing anything that didn't actually happen in the battle. We're doing as much as we can, sort of wringing as much information as we can from what actually did happen. So um, we're, there's absolutely nothing in there about genuine counterfactuals for you know different planes, different tactics. Goring coming to his senses, or yeah, yeah. It's, we're, it's we're just the, if they'd attack the radar, the actual yeah. combat data that we see happening in the battle have been rearranged differently and caused things to play out a bit differently. And so there's a version of the battle where the Germans relentlessly pounded the radar installations. Uh, and then, but, but this is one of your million, this is one of your infinite possibilities. Right, of, we don't do the radar because there weren't enough days when they really did. That's the problem, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. There were enough where they attacked airfields. Yeah. 
Um, now, a, a crucial danger in what we did is that, you know, I think there were 16 days on which the British fared particularly badly and the Germans were attacking airfields. And we extended that, I think, to 43 in one of the scenarios. Um, of course, at the extreme, you might say, if that was a surprise attack, well, you can never repeat a surprise attack. So it's not a good thing to do to repeat it many times. The correctness of this depends to a large extent on the systematic advantages that the Germans get from attacking airfields. So it is a much shorter flight across the channel to the targets near the coast. It's a more difficult situation for the British to defend. Nevertheless, you know, what we can't do from the actual data is to try to observe whether or not the British could have found better ways as such an intensive attack developed to combat those tactics. Sure, move to different satellite airfields and whatever else, yeah. And I would add to that that the, one of the things that's interesting as you do that is that you're always going to get this, this Gaussian, this bell curve that's going to appear. Yeah. And I had interesting discussions um, on social media afterwards about it, about people um, worrying about the fact that you, as you get more and more days into it, you're repeating the same day more often, then somehow it's not going to go wrong. I mean, my answer to that is that, yes, you're right. But if we're having a discussion about the tales of distributions of probabilities around the event that actually happened, I think we've done something valuable. Because I think that's, that's our interest, actually, is yeah. that can we, can we have a discussion about how likely it was and how not likely it was and, and what it looks like for a rare event to happen in these systems? It's crucial to say no black swans. So in Nassim Nicholas Taleb's phrase, black swans, really weird things that you just couldn't predict and didn't know were going to happen. Our technique has absolutely none of those because it only uses the days that actually did happen. So um, you're not going to get strange, peculiar, unforeseen events turning up. So assuming the days that did happen, mm. what days needed to be repeated for the Germans to have an even vague chance of, of winning the Battle of Britain? Yeah. Well, so the, uh, we were just looking at this actually on the way there, and, and one of the clear ones is the airfield days. Yeah, it's, attack on Biggin Hill... Yeah, so the Low 15th level, of August is 15th, a clear yeah. one, which is very different. And the, I think the issue there was that we were, we were not unsurprised to see that the whole kind of London switch is a bad idea. I think what we were surprised about is, is that the shift of the not continuing the attacks on the airfield is a similar shift to London. It's a, it's a similar level of mistake in terms of the distributional shift. So I think what we found, which was a surprise, is that it's the lack of any single coherent strategy, not the specifics of any given strategy was what was causing the distribution to shift. One comment on Twitter was that, you know, surely you can't, there's only so many times you can bomb Biggin Hill into rubble. But we don't care about that. What we care about is pilot numbers. If the RAF had continued to contest the skies to the extent to which Keith Park did on days of attacks on airfields and we'd carried on getting the same kind of results, then Britain would have run short of pilots fairly quickly. I was having a discussion actually on an email with Stephen Bungay, who wrote a lovely book about the He loves his data. Yeah, and I, I think so that the modelling he used relied more on airframes, and of course the British were building more, Lots uh, more planes. Of planes. Essentially every pilot who was able to use one could have a shiny new monoplane fighter uh, pretty much immediately. Going back to the, so the counterfactuals, I said it was a nice jumping off point for historical analysis. We realise that once you leave the data behind, the trouble is that to get these things to happen, you really need a very different mindset from Hitler and from Goering. And Jamie made the point, really, that what the Germans didn't have was a strategy. They knew they had to defeat the RAF, but they had no idea how to do so or what the right thing to do was. Should they hit the factories or the airfields? Should they destroy the RAF in the air or on the ground? They didn't know. And our feeling is that almost any strategy would have given them better results. 
I mean, the British played a blinder, as, as you commented, essentially in a kind of reverse slope defence. But Britain defended very well, especially because Keith Park was very careful to use his planes economically, sparingly, to disrupt German raids. Germans didn't really know what to do. It's an information asymmetry. It's often said that Britain had an information system which won the Battle of Britain, and the Germans, trying to decide what to do over enemy territory, just had no clue. Just making it up as they went along. Now, was there anyone doing anything even remotely similar to the job that you guys had done during the Battle of Britain or during the Second World War? Varies a lot depending on the area. So we actually had a discussion about that. So we actually struggled to find contemporary analysis like what we've done, at least at that stage of the conflict. There was an interesting thing we were reading about that, the, that you read about before as well, that Lee Mallory did some work after the Battle of Britain of doing the research. Because yeah. there's all this big wing um, mm. sort of antagonism that was going around and it's quite hard to really unpick exactly what took place in terms of the contemporary analysis and it's something that really interests us because of course Lanchester published his equations which is where we started from in 1916 so this mm. stuff was out there and they were certainly interested in this prior to this and it was very much of the vogue in the first world war era and just after it and in the inception of the RAF but 20 years on it's not quite clear where that appears in its this um, was the the first couple of papers we wrote this was actually me and historians and students, Jamie wasn't involved in those 10 years ago, was exactly on, on that. So Lanchester's equations are about what are the effects of numbers in battle. And of course, the big wing is precisely a question is, are mere numbers advantageous, all other things being equal? And again, we, we played around with some actual bootstrapping at the time, same kind of statistical model, and deduced that the Germans did better on days and in raids with large numbers than the British did. So. Uh, the big wing was probably not, not a good thing. And again, that's pretty much historical consensus. That seems to be the consensus, yeah. yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. What else have you applied this uh, this process to? So the, the Lanchesterian idea is what, 1916. Of course, that's also the year of the Battle of Jutland. This, the, the impact on that is really one of the key things that we've looked at, or whether there was any explicit impact. But it's certainly clear that if, if ever was there something that applied, the Lanchester equation to apply to, first of all, well, naval battles were definitely in that bracket. I should say something for viewers about what the Lanchester equations are. And in one sentence... Yeah, I mean, obviously I know, but I think the audience might not, so... There's a lot of rubbish that's written in in operations (laughs) research papers. At its simplest, it's that both sides perceive a target-rich environment. Okay. It's kind of a fighter pilot's joke when you're outnumbered that it's a target-rich environment. But it's very rare to have situations in which each side can aim fire against a chosen target at any moment, that there is no kind of overcrowding. And uh, the point Jamie's making is that one of the few situations when that clearly applies is dreadnought battleship warfare. Fighting in lines of sand. Because you've got lines of, exactly, so lines of battleships and every gun can find a target. Uh, The Battle of Britain and air combat is a bit different. In fact, so Lanchester's simple laws don't really apply to air combat, which is more like a a sum of duels, really. But uh, the First World War at sea is especially and unusually interesting because it's one of the few situations where this idea that you cause damage in proportion to your numbers, which is the heart of Lanchester, really do apply. And they were definitely thinking about this nearly. So there's this wonderful essay in the US school in the 1905 with Bradley yeah, Fisk, yeah. Where, where he has a spreadsheet in, basically, yeah. of, of this cumulative effect of, of firing. And he has this idea of the first five minutes that it's so important for a battleship commander to fire unopposed for five minutes and then that will sway the battle. And this, this is exactly what you would get as a kind of a rule of thumb from the Lanchester solution. So if we're looking at Jutland, what is the bits of data? It's number of shells fired and the number of ships destroyed? So what we actually think is the interesting one to look at, which is what we did in great detail, is Dogger Bank. So we, so we went back 16 months to look at the Battle of Dogger Bank. Now, the reason why Dogger Bank is interesting is that it's essentially, it's not quite this, but it's, it's not far off a trial run for the run to the south phase. Of the totally, Battle of totally. And we have good data as well for the Battle, uh, the Battle of Dogger Bank. So what we did with the modelling of that was we did a full reconstruction using a, a Bayesian framework, which is relatively recent, it's called Approximate Bayesian Computation. So we took the idea that we know what the distributions are of the various parameters of the firing, and then we tested them to see how compatible that was with the outcome. And what we found was if we look across all the data that we've got, is that actually the, what happened at Dogger Bank was extremely unlikely. So you have a situation where... That's warfare. The British believed they'd won, yet their two lead ships took something like 33 shell hits between them, whereas they only hit the lead German ships three times in total. But one of those caused a, a magazine explosion on the yeah. Sears. 
Whereas the, all of the, the hits and the sunken ship was from the trail ship, which wasn't of the same class as the rest of the combatants in that battle. So it was written off as a, as a victory, Dog of Blank, and there wasn't many lessons learned from it on the British side. So there was this still obsession with rate of fire, not of accuracy. And there was no real attempt to address inherent vulnerabilities in the ships, uh, which they were very fortunate if you look at what happened at Jutland. Very they fortunate. didn't happen at Dog of Blank. So we were able to actually quantify that. And that has a really important lesson then when you go on to, to Jutland that the, if you like, the, the Germans were able to learn from their loss at Doggerbank. I use the word in, in exclamation, in quotation marks, whereas the British didn't learn from their win, which seems to be a, a, a kind of a, a classic situation. You learn, you learn more in defeat than victory. Mm. Absolutely. So going back to the methodological point, the approximate Bayesian computation mm. ideas, let me unpick that a bit. So the essence of the Bayesian idea is you begin with an idea, you challenge it with evidence and you see what happens. Okay, so what's so, our idea? What's our idea? Uh, okay, my idea is that this drug works. Your Think about works. testing a new drug yeah. and I have an idea that it works in a certain way. I do a trial, I discover that actually I need to tweak my ideas a little bit about how this drug works. Yeah. Or in a military context, I've got a new missile system. I know what I think its envelope of operation is. I do some trials, I get slightly surprising results. And on the basis of that, I change my ideas about the, the envelope of operation of this. this if weapons. you're a sane policymaker, that means exactly. evidence-led policy. Yeah, exactly. Which well, none of them so do. in the case of, of uh, the, the First World War at sea, you know, what you do is you begin with some parameters, chances of hitting your opponent, the damage it will do, chance of destroying a turret, things like that. You challenge it with the evidence of the battle itself. And then, well, in this case, the point about Dogger Bank is that what actually happened is a really long way from consistency with the numbers. Very because of the lucky hit. Which means either your model's wrong, and we're fairly sure the model isn't wrong, there's ample evidence for, for that, or the parameters are far wrong. But the thing is that most of the ships and most of the conditions were the same at Jutland later as they were at Dogger Bank. So that gives you a very strong sense of what the numbers are. And that puts you in a position to deduce that what happened really was unlikely. Now, it's an unusual situation to be able to do that. You know, in history, there's only one outcome, typically, or one situation. I think there's a danger with historians of a hindsight bias in which you think that what actually happened was, of course, likely or was in some sense inevitable or is to be argued towards. And that, of course, as a tautology, is going to be true in most cases. But sometimes it's not. And this technology of approximate Bayesian computation gives you a chance to discover if you've got nice clean data occasions when the unlikely happened. So the unlikely is the catastrophic flash um, that blew up the German battlecruiser? Or, or is the unlikely, unlikely that the British ships took so much damage and didn't and didn't Yes, the, the British got lucky. Oh, okay, the yeah. British got lucky. The British got lucky. So the Remember, German I mean, gunnery was... simplest, three battlecruisers blew up 16 months later at Jutland. Which, which was what should have happened? Much more probable. Right, yeah. so Britain's victory was a catastrophe at Dogger Bank. I think that's quite a good way of putting it, actually. Yes. Or rather, okay, we lost three battlecruisers 16 months later at Jutland. In a sense, Jutland was still a strategic victory for the British, but it was certainly catastrophic for the crew on those three battlecruisers. Yeah. It would have been better to, to have one explosion at Dogger Bank and learn our lesson, certainly. And this, again, is a, a conventional view. And so, at the risk of getting into the weeds, I'm a, a naval history geek. Is it the fact that the British shells were rubbish, the German ships were better, uh, or the British gunnery, was, or, or the commander could like. So what, which bits did you have to tweak? Well, so well, the gunnery is one thing that I really yeah. focused on. So the, in the BCF, of course, you've got this kind of strange dual system. Battlecruiser fleet. Yeah. The battlecruiser fleet that uh, BT was commanding. 
the 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 BCF had this obsession with rate of fire over yes. accuracy. Don't start me on that. <laughs> <laughs> and the issue there is is that the accuracy is a really key yeah. part of it. That they only landed three successful hits when they're actually in a in a kind of a, a fair battle in a parallel line with their opposing numbers. And so we what, what we're based on this, we actually have done some reconstructive events of the Jutland clash that run to the south phase of the clash. And it's interesting then to then see how you might vary the tactics of, or even the strategy of the BT and Hugh Evans Thomas to have a better outcome against them, given that you've got an ability to now hit them further. So remember that everybody doesn't know really how to use these things at that stage in 1914. It's still a bit of an unknown. And there's things that were done, like the closing of the range that he did persistently, which meant that he was uh, he was actually allowed the German ships to fire, even on him, even though he actually had the ability he to He had longer range. range. I mean, useless man. I don't start me on BT. But German ships were hard to sink. Yeah. Andrew Lambert has a nice comment that the German ships were Mercedes, whereas the British ships were Fords. <sighs> They're very, very subdivided. When they were in harbour, the German crews actually stayed in barracks ashore, that they weren't intended to be ocean-going ships. Yes, they were exactly. very survivable yeah. ships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and British shells were faulty as well. And British shells were faulty. So as, could you, could you well, work out that British one. shells were faulty? Like, if we didn't know that British shells were faulty, have you work, could you have worked it out? I think not. No. So one of the interesting things about the British shells is the HE, even though it didn't penetrate very well, it did quite a lot of secondary damage, yes. which actually had the same net effect on the turret yeah. firing ability of oh, the ships. So things like Von der Tam, for example, was virtually intact after the run to the south phase, but couldn't fire any of its goods. Because uh, jammed some stuff. stuff so in the, in the mechanism. If you okay, yeah. filter out, if you separate out the issue of, of explosion, flash fire explosion, yeah. the chance that a British hit on a ship would destroy a turret w was about the same oh, as really? for a German hit destroying a turret. And Jellicoe knew this. As well as the Dogger Bank paper, we then have a, a Jutland paper that's in the journal History. So that's just straight narrative history. And the, the story there really is of British system triumphing again. So you have Jellicoe as uh, director of naval ordnance back about 10 years before Jutland, who he, he's a technocrat. He, he knows that British shells aren't as good as they should be. And he's very involved in a committee which decides on the shape of the fleet they want to build. And this is at a point when, when Jackie Fisher, Fisher uh, wants to always to build the newest and best possible ship to, to sort of vault the existing ships and build something newer and better and faster. And uh, a spanner is thrown in the works by a committee that Jellicoe's on in uh, 1905 to 6, uh, just when Dreadnought is undergoing sea trials, I think. And that committee effectively says, no, we want more big guns on the sea before we start thinking about quality again. We really do need a bigger, better fleet. And in the end, that's what wins Jutland. It's this sense that if you have a, a big fleet with more big guns on the sea, and if you keep it together, which usually means keeping it in line, then whatever the Germans do, and despite the terrible tendency of British battle cruisers to explode, Britain inevitably wins the battle which is offered but not taken up by the Germans. And there's a reason why the Germans practiced again and again the doing battle, battle turn. fleet turns yeah, so yeah. that they could turn through 180 degrees. If they find themselves heading into the British fleet, they want to be able to turn around and run away. And of course, at Jutland, they had to do that twice. They had to do that. The alternative was, was destruction. So in this occasion as well, your mathematical model is uh, agreeing with the sort of historical... Yes, I think there's yes. more interesting nuances to it as well. I think that one of my one of the characters that comes out very well from our mathematical analysis is Hugh Evans Thomas, who gets a I think, he's a, Thomas, I think yeah. he's a legend. Yeah, yeah. he gets a bit yeah. of flack from some uh, contemporary historical analysis, but no one told him anything, and he does a very good job. Uh, and our reconstructions we've done afterwards show that actually 
he wasn't doing the right thing. I mean, that essentially he didn't know. He was awaiting a plan that never appeared. And, you know, he was in the right to think that if he couldn't keep up with the battle cruisers of the first and second uh, battle cruiser fleet, then then they might as well have... He might think that there was a trap that was being sprung or something like that. So he has every reason to do that. And somebody's decision-making is brilliant. And so I think he comes out very strongly from the analysis. So, I mean, it only reinforces a view, but it's not a necessarily a majority view that the uh, some of the character analysis. Yeah. So what is next for you guys? Well, we have this rather nice collaboration. So there's the two of us, we're mathematicians, but we work with two historians, Chris Price and, and Ian Horwood. And it's uh, rather lovely because essentially what's going on is that we're mathematicians, but we're historians, Marquet. And they're historians, but unlike some historians who say, oh, I've never got any good at maths at school, they know that some things can be quantified and should be. And we try and have completely honest discussions where anything that we want, we should never pull the wool over their eyes. Any piece of maths, they should be able to insist that we take it back to one plus one equals two and explain it. So we've written quite a, a bunch of, of papers, some of which are in operations research journals, but some of which are just narrative history, so straightforward words. One of the Battle of Britain papers um, called Safety in Numbers, about the, the ideas behind the big wing, and then this paper on, on Jutland. So there's all sorts of things we can do between narrative history and bringing in new statistical techniques. We've got all sorts of things in the pipeline. One is to do with the development of aircraft carrier warfare and uh, wargaming at the US Naval War College in the 20s and the effects and implications of, of that actually in the Pacific War. In the Second World War. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think what's really interesting is it's not going back on it now with beautiful hindsight and just doing, hitting it and doing basically wargaming. It's about trying to get the history of how these things potentially made an impact on people's real decision making yeah. during the actual events that took place. And we've got good evidence that people were thinking about this a lot, particularly the naval one, because there was a lot of interest in how you should use battleships uh, prior to the First World War breaking out. But the same is true with aircraft carriers between the wars, that there was a lot of development about actually how best we use it. And things like the Naval College informed the decision-making of uh, Reeves, who basically invented the deck park because of the demands he realised were necessary from running uh, carrier war simulations. But is there also something about the data set? So with battleships, your number of shells fired and your number of hits observed, you could, it's sort of manageable. On the Somme, if you're firing a million shells, does that just make people's head... You, you, it's, yeah. you, you can't yeah. plot each one's fall. You'll notice that almost always, if I talk about the things that we're going to be working on, it's to do with air or naval warfare. Very rarely it's to do with land battles because look, you know, most people involved in land battle are not concentrating on recording data. Right? Right. They've got other things on their mind. Kursk, for example, the, the great tank battle of 1943, I've had a, a student working on, but the data are just really not fine enough or well recorded enough to be able to do sensible modelling. Whereas, as I say, so uh, you know, uh, naval warfare we can do. Battle of the Atlantic is an interesting one, partly because of its implications for economic history. And we've been looking at Vietnam. So Vietnam is interesting because, of course, McNamara was a great believer in data. You've got these rooms full of big computers, data on punched cards. You have something called the Hamlet Evaluation System, which is where the US tries to get data about every, the state of every little village, every little hamlet in Vietnam. And can you imagine it? So the, the local boss says to some poor chap on a bicycle, will you go over to that hamlet and see who's in charge? Is it us or the Viet Cong? And so... He gets on his bike, goes 100 down the, yards down the road, fills in the card, waits half a day and comes home. And what the US ends up with is garbage data, mostly. And there's a strong sense at the time of, you know, can we, can we make good, better decisions with data? Throwing all the, the modern 
statistical computing techniques at this data? In a word, the answer is no, you can't. It's garbage in, garbage out, which I think perhaps is a potentially an object lesson for people who would bring data in when it's not well understood and clean. So we want clean data. Any got, anyone listening to this got a good idea of a good clean data set? Let us know. Unfortunately, I'm trying. Uh, anything before the 20th century is just hugely unreliable, isn't it, unfortunately? Yeah. I should perhaps say, so uh, the kind of techniques we're, we're using are very unusual in history. Military history is quite good because often you do have clean data. In economic history, there's much more of this kind of thing. And uh, typically, economics and econometrics, measuring economies, is a matter of what are called time series data. So things, things like the rate of inflation. So you measure them month after month and day after day. There is an area of history that, again, is controversial, cleodynamics. So Cleo, the muse of history. And, again, there's a danger of trying to do things that are, I think, in some cases, that are not fully warranted. But you can look back, for example, at inflation data and great inflations of the past. And with economic data, you can often do interesting, not so much counterfactual, but, but quantifiable things in history. Just my mind's worrying now. Is that the 18th century Navy just not quite... Frederick the Great did quite a lot of work with musketry and, and shooting at sheets and bits of paper to try and work out just yes. how effective musketry was fired by an infantry battalion. But I, don't, I, I can't believe they record... Uh, anyway, I'll look it up and send it to you if I can find mm, it. That's great. Well, that was just phenomenal. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, stay in touch. Talk, let's talk about your next one, whatever it might be. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.